0: Good morning, Four Corners Church. It is such a blessing to sing those praises to God. I I pray that your heart is stirred. I you know we, we come in here often, and our minds are just all over the place. Our affections are scattered, and uh, those songs just have a way of just recalibrating us. I know sometimes we put the Gettys up on uh, Pandora on our TV, and You can come home at the end of a day and you turn that on and you're just feeling whatever, you know, and then you begin to hear those words of praise to God and your heart just erupts. And so uh, we just are so thankful that we can gather like this and sing praises together and not have to to whisper those praises as Jared said earlier. It is good to be back and um, I want to thank Trey for preaching last Sunday And uh, I really do look forward to hearing more from Philippians as he continues to work through that. What a treasure, what a precious treasure that little epistle is to the church. It has been, uh, there are so many life verses, you know, (laughs) maybe you do that sort of thing. You have a life verse, that's great. Um, You put it down at the bottom of your email or or wherever. Uh, It's just a way for you to stay centered uh, on what God wants you to be and do. And maybe God has used a specific verse in your life, but uh, I have seen a lot of those from Philippians. So uh, it is such a little treasure for us, and uh, I'll look forward to us working through that over time. But today we are back in Romans chapter 9, and specifically verses 24 to 29. So you can go ahead and turn there at this point if you would. Romans 9, verses 24 to to 29. So we are making progress getting through this epistle, and uh, we're a little over halfway done <coughs> at this point. <clears throat> and as I've said many times, we're in a little bit of a mini-series. Romans 9 through 11 constitutes a significant chunk. Uh, it is a distinct section of this letter, Paul's most famous letter uh, in the New Testament. We know that God needs no vindication. We hear that word sometimes, and, uh, but we, we immediately kind of uh, draw back from that because we know that God is not in need of any vindication. No defense team needed to get God off the hook. You know, apolo- apologetics comes from the Greek word for basically defense, and that's not to say apologetics is not a worthwhile enterprise. It most certainly is. But it is to say that in the end, God doesn't need apologists. God doesn't need a defense. He is God. He is our judge. We are not his judge. And nevertheless, Paul has spent some time offering a defense, an apology uh, in this Chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 9. He has made an attempt, and as we see, very that the earliest apologies of the Christian church are are drawing from the apostles. Uh, Peter's uh, famous quote about giving a reason for the hope that is in you. We see Paul doing apologetics in Acts 17 uh, in Athens. We see it throughout. Paul is doing a bit of apologetics, a bit of defending God's character in Romans 9 up to this point where we are. God's word, his promises, God's justice, God's election, all of these things are being challenged. So Paul desires to defend them. The underlying problem behind all of these objections and Paul's responses, his defenses, uh, in light of those objections, underlying all of that is the problem that most of Israel, God's chosen historic people, his chosen nation, have rejected Christ. The nation of Israel has largely, corporately, rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says at the beginning of the chapter, they uniquely are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They're the recipients of all of these promises, of all of this glory and presence of God. And they are traced back to the patriarchs whom God specifically chose to be his own possession on the earth. And they are the relatives, according to the flesh, of Christ. And the majority of these people just described in Paul's day have not embraced the gospel. They have rejected the gospel. They have rejected God's salvation. They have rejected God's Christ. And they have rejected God himself incarnate in the flesh. Remember, in rejecting Christ, they have not just rejected The one whom God sent. Though that is the way Christ refers to himself. They have not just rejected God's great prophet. Though Christ is the prophet. They've not just rejected their king. Christ is the king. They have rejected Emmanuel. God With us. They have rejected the Word who was with God, who is Himself God, who is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, who is the radiance of the glory of God. They have rejected the God of Israel. Israel has rejected the God of Israel. We've looked at how Paul responds, and I won't summarize all of that again today. I am inclined towards summary, but I will not do that today. I will spare you all of that. But it has led us up to the doctrine of election. That's where we have been recently. So all of Paul's response to those objections, Paul's defense of God's character, has been moving along in Romans 9 and has led us right up to this topic, this doctrine of election. That God, according to his own will and for his own glory, chooses some and not others. Let me say it this way from one lump of clay, God, the sovereign potter, chooses some to be vessels or recipients of mercy for his glory and others to be vessels. Or recipients of wrath, also for His glory. You know, you can't spend much time in the Bible without seeing that God's great theme is His own glory. And if you're wondering, you know, we 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 don't like that quality in human beings. Any human being is who who is about his glory or her glory that's immediately repulsive, even to pagans. I mean, that whole. Uh, that whole emanation of pride is just something we, we think is rotten in human character. But it is not the same with God. For what else would God be about? What else would God value above all things besides his own glory? He is the infinite God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing. Before anything was, God is. What else could he be about besides his own glory? Glory, And so we've seen that God's election is about his glory. And this notion of election is presented to us all the way back uh, to verse 10. And it's implied before that. But going all the way back to verse 10 and climbing up through the last verses we covered in Romans 9 verse 23. That passage we covered last time. So verses 10 to 23, we get this mention of Election. And several of you in talking with you have said to me, you know, it really was Romans 9 that helped me uh, embrace the doctrine of unconditional election. That God chooses entirely apart from anything in those whom he chooses, but he chooses simply according to his own will. And that is not surprising. Romans 9 is one of those passages that is just so crystal clear. And I've said this many times. I don't think Romans 9, uh, the portions we've covered, is confusing. I don't think the message of Paul is confusing. It is just hard for human beings to swallow. That's why it is difficult, not because uh, there's a lot to untangle, So let me just give you, as I say all of that about about election, let me give you several things to keep in mind as we process this, because I I recognize that some of you here are are either coming to this doctrine of election, predestination, God choosing some and not others. This whole idea is maybe a bit foreign to you, or you have been in a church before. I, I know of churches even in our area who would say that this notion is heretical, that would say that what we've just seen Paul so clearly say is heresy. So um, certainly some of us have, have been in an environment where we have been, not been taught these things or we've been taught contrary to them. So I recognize there are varying levels of processing that are going on. And those in gospel community groups have probably experienced this firsthand as you've been discussing that uh, over the last few weeks. So let me just give you several things to consider uh, as we process this before we move to our next passage for this morning. So four things to consider. First, in God's electing purposes, all humanity is considered Fallen. And this gets to the decrees of God before the world began because we know election happens in the mind of God before the world began. But did that happen in the mind of God? Logically, we know that God's not making these decisions temporally, He's eternal. But logically, in the mind of God, did His decree to elect come after or before uh, the, the fall in God's mind as He Decrees in eternity. And I think our text has demonstrated that uh, all humanity is considered as fallen when election takes place. This is, uh, by the way, I, I don't like to throw out too many of these, these words, but this is the difference between supralapsarian and infralapsarian. Just let those go right over your head if you'd like. Uh, superlapsarian before the fall... God decreed election in his mind before the decree of the fall. Before that, superlapsarian or infralapsarian, it comes after the fall. And I'm saying that I think our text teaches infralapsarian, that the decree to elect comes after God's decision regarding the fall in his own mind, according to his Logic. So don't feel that you have to write those words down, but I hope that that at least is somewhat clear. So this lump that Paul talks about, the lump of clay mentioned in verse 21, this is a category of people to whom, notice this, this is why I think the infralapsarian position is what is being taught here. Uh, this is a category of people, this lump of clay, a category of people to whom some are shown mercy. As verse 15 says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Well, what does that tell us? Mercy or compassion makes no sense without the backdrop of the fall in the mind of God. Does that make sense? Uh, Unless the the fall is in view when the determination to show mercy comes, then it doesn't, uh, it's not Mercy. The whole concept of showing mercy is to show mercy to those who do not deserve it, to those who have sinned and are in a pitiful state and who are the recipients of God's uh, pity and His compassion. So I would would argue that the fall is in view as God eternally decrees to elect some. So I hope I haven't lost most of us. Yet, But let me go to the second point, which I think will be a little clearer. The second consideration, just as we process what we've heard in the last few weeks, is that no one can say that God is unfair to choose some. This is very common among folks who would argue against predestination or unconditional election, is that God would be unfair to choose some and not others. But it really just takes a little bit of thought to undo that. Because what we see is that all fallen sinners deserve wrath. And every Christian would agree with that. That all sinners deserve wrath. If God chooses to show mercy to some of those who deserve wrath, destruction, and judgment, how in the world would that be unfair? How would it be unfair for God to take among a mass of people who deserve condemnation to show his mercy to some of those and not all of those. What we see here is that there is no entitlement. There's no entitlement to God's salvation. That's the fundamental error in the minds of those who, uh, who would argue against this. There is no entitlement. No one deserves anything other than Sin, death, and hell. Sin being increased, as we saw at the end of Romans 1, to the defiling of mind and body and ruin in one's path, Romans 3, ultimately leading to the tribunal of God in which the verdict of guilty is rendered and the sentence of hell is given. That's what we all deserve. Every human being. God shows mercy to some. Praise God. Praise God. So the third consideration as we process this is if this double predestination makes you uncomfortable, and I do think that Romans 9 teaches double predestination, if this double predestination makes you uncomfortable, that God elects some and reprobates others, or that he shows mercy to some and hardens others, as Paul explicitly says in our text, if that makes you uncomfortable, then consider that God's ultimate objective is not to display his wrath to vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Don't get the image of God as just sitting there going, I'm going to destroy these vessels of wrath, Uh, just in and of itself, as this end in and of itself. No, this end has a purpose, to display the depth of his mercy to those who receive it. And this is the logic of verses 22 and 23. Let Let me read those to you. I want you to see clearly what I'm saying. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? There's not a period there. These words follow. In order order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Do you see that? The end of God in electing and in reprobating is that he might display the riches of his glory in his mercy to those who are vessels of mercy. In the wisdom of God... Those who have received mercy, being able to appreciate that mercy and worship God eternally for it, requires, it necessitates, there being those who have been judged for sin. We defer to the wisdom of God. Who are we? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The ways of God are inscrutable. They are higher than our own. God's ultimate objective is to deepen and heighten the experience of mercy for those who receive it. All of God's reprobating is for our good. Let me say that again, Christian. Before you attack God for what we have seen, that God from the mass of fallen humanity chooses some to be vessels of mercy, recipients of mercy, and he chooses others to be vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. Know this before that gets you been out of shape. As you talk to God about it, know this, that God has done it, Christian, for your good. For your good. For the good of the vessels of mercy. That is the logic of the apostle in verses 22 to 23. And finally, a fourth consideration and then we'll move on to our text for today. Those whom God hardens also harden themselves. We saw this in the case of Pharaoh. You go back to Exodus and you read. Now Paul picks up on what is most fundamental and ultimate is that God hardened Pharaoh. That's, what, uh, that's the reason for what's going on there. But throughout the Exodus narrative, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart as well. Those whom God hardens also harden themselves. And this reminds us that God is choosing to display his wrath upon those who are already lost in sin. Listen, God is choosing to display wrath upon those who are already children of wrath as sinners in Adam. But let me say this. This is important. Rather than simply, as some theologians describe it, some whom I greatly respect, rather than simply passing over them or allowing them to go their own way. So that's the way a lot of folks describe it is there's this mass of, of, of humanity, fallen humanity. And God chooses, he puts his love on some, that idea of foreknowledge, he loves some, he predestines some, he, he puts his love on some, and he simply kind of ignores or, or passes over or just lets these just sort of progress in their own way. Way that idea, I don't think, is what Paul has told us. And, and, and I don't think that's hard to see. As you walk through the words that Paul has used, rather than simply passing over them or allowing them to go their own way, God makes use of them for his own glory and the good of the saints. Let me say it this way. God is not passive and unintentional with regard to sinners prepared for destruction. God is intentional and God is active and he is doing all for his glory. So I hope that helps a little to process what we've seen in Romans 9. And so now it is up to us all to be good Bereans and to go and and search the Scriptures, and to read Romans 9 more and more, and research it out, and compare it Scripture with Scripture, and to prayerfully give God praise, and to embrace what we find in His Word. And we're all growing, we're all trying to come to a deeper understanding of what God's Word teaches. But I hope at least that if you are along the spectrum of uh, sort of embrace of These doctrines that those considerations at least help in the endeavor to process all that we have encountered. And many, many large books have been written on this topic. So please go and read those and and, uh, enjoy those. We can't turn uh, all of that material into a sermon. Or that would be, we we would be uh, preaching on Romans 9 for about 10 years. And we're not going to do that. So... I hope that what I've said so far helps. So today we are in verses 24 to 29. We move from God's electing purposes in general to what is specifically happening in Paul's day as the gospel goes out. So we have general election being described. God is explaining the the whole idea and concept of election, and now he's going to tie it back in to the main theme. Remember, we're talking about Israel. As many Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ, while only a small minority of Israelites are coming to faith. God's election is the answer to that dilemma. God's electing purposes is the answer to the big problem of Israel's unbelief. And that's what we're going to look at today. What's happening? What's going on? So the title for the sermon this morning is The Potter's Vessels of Mercy. And if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We looked last time at the sovereign potter, and now we're coming to the potter's vessels Of mercy, so I'm going to begin at the at the beginning of chapter nine, and I I hope. Let me ask you to do this. All those considerations that I just said, in terms of helping us process, here we go again. We're going to read the text again, try to follow Paul's logic, and uh, let's let's move that logic right into our text for today. This is the word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. The patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though, here's the apologetic, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And now here we go with mention of election explicitly. Follow what Paul says about especially if what I've just said to you is really sitting funky, right? If what I've said to you just now before is really not sitting well, uh, just listen to what Paul says in, uh, in these verses. And not only so, but also... in all the earth, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? We've all heard that one and probably we've all said that. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In Order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And now, our text for today. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help before we jump into these verses. Father, we humbly come to passages like these, Lord, and we just, we wrestle. We wrestle in our minds. We wrestle with these passages in our own human ethical structures. We, we struggle with these passages in, as we think about the lives of the people we love as parents as we think about our children born in Adam born either vessels of wrath prepared for destruction or vessels of mercy prepared for glory God it is these are these are profound truths and they are they are not easy to wrap our minds and our hearts around God we pray that you would give us hearts and minds to see what your word clearly says, and God, that we would submit ourselves to it, and, and as theologians for millennia now have said, that we would, we would be those who have faith-seeking understanding, that we would trust your word and what it says on face, for face value, for what it says on the surface, what, what, it, what it means, and uh, interpreting it with other scriptures, and, and Lord, that we would trust it though we are scratching our heads, we would trust it and put our entire life into it, even though we don't yet understand it. Father, we recognize there will be things in this life that we never understand in our finitude and our inability to see beyond the ceiling of this earthly existence. And so, God, we pray that you would guide our hearts to be those who seek to know, but at the same time, those who are honest about our own weakness, our own frailty, our sinfulness, and just our general humanity. God, we pray that you would be with us as a church as we appropriate these truths rightly, as we draw out the right implications from these truths, those that lead to worship and not arrogance, those that lead to intense evangelism for the sake of the glory of your name rather than indifference to the lost. Father, we pray that you would guide all of us as a church and individually, Father, uh, that our hearts would respond to these truths rightly. We ask God that today what is before us in these verses would be clearly taught and understood in in our minds and that our hearts would respond in faith and repentance by the spirit. Be with us now, we pray, in Jesus name. Amen. So the potter's Vessels of mercy. In these verses, verses 24 to 29, Paul is describing the vessels of mercy in God's redemptive plan. And he presents this in two parts. So we'll have those up on the screen here. (coughs) He He presents first the reversal concerning the Gentiles. And then secondly, the remnant concerning the Jews. It's the structure of what he has to say here is pretty clear. So first, let's look at the reversal which concerns the Gentiles. Look with me at verses 24 to 26. Even us, so he's going from vessels of mercy prepared for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved or beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. As we've seen throughout Romans, Paul is intent on showing that the message of Christ, the Christian gospel, the doctrine of the New Testament, the apostles teaching, is rooted in the Old Testament. We find that all throughout the New Testament. Uh, Matthew is one of the a writer's that comes most to mind. I mean, he's constantly trying to show that what is happening in Jesus Christ is from the Old Testament, prophesied in the Old Testament. And Paul does the same thing, and he does this all throughout Romans. Lots and lots of quoting to show that the message of Christ is rooted in the Old Testament. We saw this at the very beginning. You go back to chapter 1, verse 2, The gospel that Paul preaches, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, at the very beginning of Paul's presentation of his message, of his presentation of the gospel, he wants to say, Look, this gospel of which I am an apostle has been preached beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It was promised. You go there and you look, and you will see that it was promised. And then in that central passage of Paul's message, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, which we have over here on this wall, on that board, he says in verse 21, that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So very much wanting to say, look, the message of Christianity, the message of Christ is a fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament, what was born witness to, Christ and the gospel concerning Christ are the fulfillment of all Scripture. But that's not all that Paul wants to show. It is not just the content of the message that was foretold. Listen to this. Not just the content. It was also the manner in which it would be received. God prophesied through his prophets. Well, he, he declared through the prophesying of his prophets Not just that this message would come, but he explained how it would be received, how it would be heard, embraced, or not embraced. Paul wants his readers to understand what is happening as the gospel goes out. This was foretold in the Old Testament Scriptures. It is part of God's plan. That's the big idea of all of this is God is working according to a plan. The rejection of Israel, Israel's rejection of God's Messiah is according to God's plan. God's not up in heaven going, come on guys, scratching his head, trying to figure out what the next plan is going to be so he can lure his people to come on into the kingdom. No, that's a wimpy God. That's not the Christian God. That's not the God of the Bible who is 100% supremely sovereign over every ounce, every speck of matter and unseen form in the universe. It's part of God's plan. So Paul turns first to the Gentiles, God's vessels of mercy Includes the Gentiles. For this, he goes to the prophet Hosea. And this has been written a lot about what Paul does in these verses. Writing against the 10 northern tribes of Israel in the 700s BC, Hosea is a prophet. He's a prophet in the northern kingdom. You'll remember after Solomon, the kingdoms divide. And so in the north, you have the 10 northern tribes. In the south, you have Judah and Benjamin. And so they divide, and they basically are two competing nations. And Hosea is prophesying to the northern kingdom with its 10 tribes. And God takes Hosea... And he so takes his life. By the way, you talk about living for the Lord. I mean, this is living for the Lord. Uh, God calls Hosea to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. Now, it's unclear whether she was a prostitute before or uh, she was a, kind of promiscuous. He married her and she became that. It's, just, it's not exactly clear kind of how all that unfolds. But the, the, the whole idea is that Hosea would marry this promiscuous woman who became a prostitute or who was a prostitute. He would marry her and her whoredom, as it says in the ESV in Hosea, uh, against Hosea would be a little picture of the whoredom of Israel against its God. A picture of what was going on theologically as the northern tribes were going after Baal and other false gods and heinous practices of the nations. So God has Hosea marry her and have children with her and she's unfaithful to him. God does this in order to depict what is happening with Israel and they... As I said before, have, as it were, committed adultery against their husband. This is a theme when we come to Christ and the church in the New Testament. We recognize that this whole idea of bride and bridegroom really goes back to the Old Testament. Israel was the, the wife, the bride of the bridegroom or the husband, Yahweh, the God of Israel. So they have committed adultery by forsaking the Lord. Hosea has three children with Gomer, and the names of these children describe God's punishment on them. So God is just doing it up with illustrations through Hosea's life. And by the way, I mean, as I said before, this is an incredible picture of devotion to the Lord above all else. Hosea's entire life is, is, is a picture, his marriage and his Children's names, their very existence, is a picture of God's relationship with Israel. So the next time you complain about something that God has asked you to do, or that something God's called you to do as being a bit uncomfortable, think Hosea. Think that level of commitment to the Lord's workings. The second child is a daughter, and she is named No Mercy. And the third child is a son, and he is named not my people. So you see the children are meant to show the effect of the adultery. This is God's judgment on his people. Because of their sin, they will receive no mercy and will be rejected as not my people. But then God says... That he will reverse all of this. And that's what Paul picks up on here in our passage. Paul is picking up on the message that God delivers through Hosea, that this "not my people and this no mercy" will be reversed by God. And in verse 25, he quotes pretty loosely from Hosea 2:23. and in verse 26, he quotes verbatim from Hosea 1:10. What's interesting, though, about this passage, this is the reason it stirred up so much controversy or has caused a lot of commentators to squirm. What's interesting about it is that Hosea is clearly referring to Israel. He is clearly writing to Israel. Whereas Paul uses this passage to refer to the Gentiles. What in the world is Paul doing? Is he playing fast and loose with the Old Testament? Just grabbing it and twisting it and turning it? I mean, the rabbis would have had reason to say, Paul, what are you doing? This is wrong. False teaching, false teaching. Paul's misusing the Bible. Was Paul misusing the Bible? Paul's message is that there will be a great reversal concerning the Gentiles. The not my people will be called my people. The not loved will be called loved, and the not my people will be called sons of the living God. Before I go on to answer that question that I just raised, let me just draw out this quickly. With these three phrases, my people, loved, sons of the living God, don't we get so much insight into who we are as Christians? so much insight here. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament prophets. This is who we are. This is your identity. If you are a Christian, you are one who is loved by God and all that that means. You belong to God. You are part of his covenant people. That's, what's, that's what we see in the Lord's Supper. That's the reason we say to people who aren't believers. Please don't partake of the Lord's Supper. Because it is one of the most vivid illustrations. Or images of this belonging to the covenant of God's people. Joined together corporately in his blood. The blood of Christ. We belong to God. We are loved by God. And we have God as our very father. We are sons and daughters of the living God. So we don't want to pass over that. We just want to recognize this is who we are as Christians, know that, and live in light of that identity. <clears throat> I finally got around to reading Paul's trip book, Paul Tripp's book on parenting. And it's just so helpful. It's just so helpful for uh, recalibrating in your mind what your job is as a parent and what your job is not, and who you are as a parent and what you are not as a parent, and how much we just depend on God's grace and how much we must find our identity in who we are in relation to the Lord our God. And not in relation to our kids, not in relation to our home, not in terms of all the, the, the hopes and dreams we have for domestic life, but in the Lord our God. So I'll move on beyond that, but I think that is helpful for us. So how does Paul... Take an Old Testament text, back to our question, referring to Israel and apply it to the Gentiles. Let me give you a quote here from John Murray. And it was difficult trying to determine what quote to select here. There were a few that I uh, was toying with. And, of course, in my mind, I think I'll just include them all. But um, better judgment said not to do that. So I want to give you this extensive quote from John Murray, which I think is satisfactory and it leaves us still scratching our heads a little bit, and there, isn't, there are nuances to it, but I think it at least helps us begin to wrap our minds around why it is or how it is that Paul can take an Old Testament text related to Israel and uh, have it referred to Gentiles. So John Murray says this: "In Hosea, they refer these words, refer to the tribes of Israel and not to the Gentile nations." There should be no difficulty. Don't get trouble," he's saying. Paul recognizes that the rejection and restoration of Israel of which Hosea spoke have their parallel in the exclusion of the Gentiles from God's covenant favor and then their reception into that favor. Of Israel it had been said, For I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel. But this is not the final word. God will again betroth in loving kindness and in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. So it is with the Gentiles, once forsaken of God, but later embraced in covenant love and favor. The same procedure is exemplified in both cases. And Paul finds in the restoration of Israel to love and favor the type in terms of which the Gentiles become partakers of the same grace. So Paul is reflecting on that passage in light of Christ's coming, in light of God's redemptive plan understood holistically. And it is quite interesting. I won't get into all of this. But if you go back and read Hosea, there are a lot of prophetic uh, images there regarding the Messiah. Go back and just listen to Hosea. Through at least the first five, six chapters. And just listen for the way that, that Christ is present there in those chapters. And so Paul is looking back through Christ and he is using this in that way. I think this tells us that it is easy for us to lose the awe and wonder that God has called us from the pagan nations of the world. Some of you have done your, uh, traced your ancestry Um, back as far as you can go, but uh, undoubtedly, uh, there may be some in here who have Jewish ancestry largely, but undoubtedly you trace it back. Just keep going back. Keep going back. And What were your people, your ancestors doing years and years ago? Worshipping idols. Worshipping the moon goddess. Worshipping trees and rocks and lizards. Worshipping all kinds of false gods and idols. We come from the pagan nations. We are, as Christians today, Gentiles, recipients of God's grace to the pagan peoples of the earth. Our, in my case, pagan Anglo-Saxon forebears. Godless bunch. So would we be, apart from what we're reading today. Today. It is easy for us to lose the awe and wonder of this as we thank God for our salvation. Ephesians 2.12 makes the point, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was the situation for them before the gospel came. That was the situation for their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. And that was the situation for our ancestors before the coming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 210 2, 9, and 10 makes the same point. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to this. Once you were not a people. Peter here referring, uh, you, alluding to Hosea as well. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Paul is saying, according to God's electing purposes, foretold in the prophets, a great reversal has occurred, and that's the reason for our point, a great reversal has occurred for the Gentiles. But now we turn, as we close this morning, to the Jews, to Israel, and that brings us to our second point, the remnant. So look with me at verses 27 to 29 as we finish up this morning. To Isaiah chapter 10 verses 22 to 23 and Isaiah 1 9 and I just mentioned those for you you can see those in your Bible almost all Bibles will will put uh, uh, those references down in a footnote he is Paul is pounding the reader with scriptural quotes showing that God's purposes are very much in effect nothing has escaped God's notice God no, nothing's out of control everything that's happening As Paul is out preaching his gospel, everything that's happening is is according to God's plan. As we read in verse 24, there are vessels of mercy called from among the Gentiles. A great reversal has occurred. And there are vessels of mercy called from among the Jews. Paul says that in verse 24. But the numbers don't match. That's the problem. The numbers just don't match. You might expect if you were a Jew living in the first century that there would be this uh, tiny little door that would open up for the Gentiles and a few would kind of come in sideways, just sort of squeaking through and there would be a, a tiny little number of Gentiles and a massive number of Israelites saved. Christ has come, the Messiah has come, going out to the Gentiles, some, most, all Israel coming in, flooding into the kingdom. Uh, It's the reverse. The numbers don't match. The overwhelming majority of believers, increasingly in the first century, is drawn from the Gentiles. Why is this? Paul roots his answer in Isaiah. And it boils down to one word. Remnant. Remnant. God is working through the Gentiles through reversal, but he is working among Israelites through only a remnant. Now, it's important for us to see that this idea of remnant is both negative and positive. When we read the word remnant, we're to think both negative and positive. It is negative because it denotes few. It is only a remnant. That's its negative side. It is positive because it shows God's mercy. The fact that there even is a remnant is itself a demonstration of God's mercy. Though ethnic Israelites be as numerous as the sand of the sea, only some are chosen. Remember the whole context of election. Paul was teaching all of that. To get back to Israel. His whole point is to explain what's going on. Though ethnic Israelites be as numerous as the sand of the sea, only some are chosen as true Israelites. As Paul said earlier in verses 6 and 7, true children of Abraham, true offspring of God. Without this offspring remnant, Isaiah prophesied, listen to this, this this is breathtaking, the nation of Israel would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, described in Genesis chapter 19. And we walked through that. We saw Abraham's prayer to God. We saw the angels rescue Lot and his two daughters and his wife, though she was turned into a pillar of salt judged by God because her heart was with the Sodomites. We saw God rescue Lot on account of Abraham. But we saw God's judgment on that wicked, perverse place. That entire region, the valley, all those cities. And it's amazing. We were talking about this in family worship the other night. It's amazing to me that Lot was to go out and go to the hills. And Lot turns around and begs those angels to be able to go to the city of Zoar. He just wants to go there instead. And the angels say to him, okay, I'll grant you this also. We will not destroy that city on your account. Whoa! God's mercy. He was going to destroy the whole city. He preserved it on account of Lot, and Lot didn't even stay there. He ended up leaving because he was afraid. Jude 7 says concerning Sodom and Gomorrah that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. By the way, it is just not tenable to say that the issue in Sodom and Gomorrah was aggression or violence. It was sexual perversion. It was homosexuality. That's why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We see the rage and the violence and the just unrestrained, beastly passion of those who are in Sodom as they are scratching down the door of Lot. So I don't want to underplay that. But the issue, as Jude here clearly tells us, is that they were lost in sexual immorality and unnatural desire. The same unnatural desire, women for women, men for men, that Paul so clearly says, talks about in Romans chapter 1. So isn't it striking that this most wicked Of cities, these most wicked of cities, that Israel herself, precious Israel, who had the promises and the covenants and the very glorious presence of the living God, would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah had it not been for this remnant. Without the remnant, without the preserving of some offspring, there would be nothing left utter wickedness and ruin would have been the lot of Israel. But God is merciful. And what Paul is saying is that in his mercy, he has preserved some in Paul's day and throughout history. And here I want to read the first 10 verses of Romans 11 to you, because I think at this point it's good to see where we're headed and to see how what Paul says later ties back into or builds on top of what we have here. So let me read this to you. Romans 11, verses 1 to 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Talking about Israel there, the nation. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. Elijah was saying, God, I'm the only faithful one left in all of Israel. Everyone else is gone after Baal. Except me. God says, no, Elijah. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So just as it was in the day of Elijah, where it seemed as though the whole nation had gone after false gods, so much so that the prophet himself doesn't even see there's a remnant there. And Paul is saying the same is true in his day. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Here's what's happening. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened by God. I'm inserting that, but that's implied. The rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them... Well, there it is. It's explicit. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That's what Paul is talking about in our passage for today. A remnant. A remnant of believing Israelites. So the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, the armies of heaven, the armies of men, the universe itself, He has mercifully preserved His people. Some Jews, many Gentiles. But as Hosea declares concerning Israel itself, we are looking for another reversal. Here's the beauty of how the the, the Old Testament works in light of Christ. Yes, Hosea's message to the Jews can be appropriated and applied to the Gentiles and yet it still stands for the Jews. You still have to read the message of Hosea with respect to the Jews. Another reversal is coming. A reversal for Israel herself. So listen to what Paul says in chapter 11 of Romans, verses 25 to 27. Lest you be wise in your own sight, speaking to Gentile Christians, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Listen, this is what God's doing. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Partial, remember there's a remnant. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and in this way all israel will be saved as it is written the deliverer will come from zion he will banish ungodliness from jacob and this will be my covenant with them when i take away their sins we're waiting on another reversal the first reversal will lead to gentile praise forever the second reversal will lead to jewish praise forever all one in christ Jesus. We'll talk more about that passage when we come to it in chapter 11. But here's the bottom line, Christian. Our God is faithful, just, merciful, and sovereign. Worship him. Worship him with your life. Worship him in spirit and truth. Put him on display. Live to lift him up. Trust him in all things. Great And mundane. Live for him alone. And long to be with him. In glory. Behold our God. Let's pray. Father we thank you for. The verses that we have. Been able to to read and study today. We pray that the truth there would. Be worked into our hearts. We thank you for revealing yourself to us so clearly, so powerfully in Your Word. We ask that You would make our hearts malleable and, Lord, that we would be doers of the Word and not mere hearers, that we would leave here today as those who know You for who You are. We know about You and we know You. We walk with You and we live for You. We worship You with lives that are entirely devoted to Your service. God, we thank You for the time together today. And we just ask that you be with us this week. Uh, Thank you for the freedom we have in this country to worship you and help us, Lord, to uh, be honorable citizens and those who love our country and seek the good of our country, all the while recognizing that we are pilgrims and exiles in this world and that we are citizens of heaven. We thank you for this time today. Father, be with us now in the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you'll be serving the Lord's Supper, I would ask you to go ahead and come forward this morning at this time. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 32 says this, "For I receive, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, Took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.